0: It's incredibly quiet here. We're so close to the Forbidden City, the most famous tourist site in Beijing, and yet, if you just stand still and listen, you hear birds in the trees as if you're in the middle of the countryside. As you'd expect for a city of 22 million, Beijing can be pretty noisy. But in the old imperial heart of the capital, the din of the modern world falls away. Welcome to Drum Tower. I'm David Rennie, the Economist's Beijing bureau chief. My co-host, Alice Su, is on a well-earned break. As I'm on my own this week, I decided to leave the office and take you to my favourite part of Beijing. It's hutongs. Hutongs are grey-walled, tree-shaded alleys and lanes. They're low-lying, made up of single-storey courtyard houses and shops. And here and there, you catch just a glimpse of grandeur, the green or gold of a temple roof rising above the lanes. I've loved them since I first borrowed a bike and toured them as a backpacker a quarter century ago. Some of the hutongs date back centuries, but they were nearly lost. When I was first posted here as a reporter in the late 1990s, hutongs were being smashed down at a scary rate to make way for wide roads or commercial developments. Go back a bit further, to the era of Chairman Mao Zedong and revolution was the threat. Mao thought Beijing was snobbish and effete. He once boasted that when he stood on the Tiananmen, the front gate of the Forbidden City, he wanted to see factory chimneys in all directions. Many of the last surviving Hutongs are now protected, but saving bricks isn't enough. Because Beijing's old alleys have the spirit of the city, its history, and its character encoded in them like DNA. This week, I want to explore how much of that spirit remains and meet the Beijingers trying to preserve it. From the ground, the hutongs can feel like a maze. But before I take you in there, I want to show you them from above and happily. In the old heart of this city, a long gone emperor built an artificial mountain with a bird's eye view, Jingshan or Prospect Hill. So we're about halfway up the hill here, and you can hear Just then, there were some children with their grandmother coming up the hill and they suddenly got very excited by the fact that you can see the Forbidden City so clearly. They were saying, let's take a picture here, let's take some photos here. And the mother was saying, no, no, we can keep going further up, get a better view now. Oh, let's take some pictures here. But this is only the halfway point. So the mother was right, you can keep going up for a better view. The climb is worthwhile not just because the path leads through ancient cypress trees and because you can hear magpies and rooks singing away, but at the very top, above the tree line, you suddenly see the whole city laid out below you. And that street plan is ancient, and it tells the story of Beijing. I'm standing on the top of the Jingshan, the Prospect Hill, and it's my favourite place. I first came here on my very first visit to Beijing in the mid-1990s, and maybe a bit childishly, every time family and friends came to Beijing for the first time, I would try and bring them here and play a kind of surprise on them, that I would bring them up from the north, take them up the path, ask them not to look over to their south, and only when we got here to the Ting, the pavilion of 10,000 springs on the peak of the hill, would I allow them to look and see the golden tiles of the roofs of the Forbidden City, the red walls of its pavilions and courtyards, stretching away, this extraordinary view through the pine trees and cypresses on this hill. Jingshan stands on a north-south axis, the meridian line that runs through the whole Imperial City. And while the Forbidden City dominates the view to the south, beyond it, you can see the open space of Tiananmen Square. To the east, is the skyscrapers of the business district. And to the west is the low-lying leadership compound where party bosses work and live. You can just see some grey roofs poking through the trees. And due north is a massive red tower, and this podcast's namesake, the drum tower, the Gulou, home to the drums that once beat out the time nightly. Beijing is a city marked by war and conquest. Jingshan itself was created with earth dug from a palace moat, and its building was a show of power and maybe insecurity. It was created by a new dynasty, the Ming, and supposedly it's on top of the throne room of the rulers they're just overthrown, the Mongol dynasty founded by Kublai Khan. Jump forward another three centuries, and the Ming were overthrown. And in a fit of shame, the last Ming emperor hanged himself from a tree at the foot of Jingshan. All this talk of compass points is no accident. China's emperor was a priest-king, the representative of heavenly order, and his palace stood at the centre of the cosmos. This hill protects the palace from the harmful effects of the north wind, just as tombs in China are shielded with a mound on their northern end. In those imperial times, Hutongs in the inner city were reserved for trusted citizens, and even in the 20th century, the finest courtyard homes were reserved for the rich and powerful, and after the Communist Revolution, for the well-connected. And from the top of Jingshan, the roofs of the Hutongs are like a sea of grey tiles, I'm going to go to one of them, the Zhonglao Hutong, to meet a man working to save Beijing's old alleyways and their way of life. In the Zhonglao Hutong, at number 28, you'll find the Courtyard Institute. It's a cultural centre run by Hu Xinyu, also known as Matthew Hu.
1: This is a very old piece of wall, but this is not every ordinary piece of wall. This is part of the Inner Imperial City Wall. And uh, this wall used to be surrounding the Forbidden City to separate the Imperial City and the Forbidden City. On this side of the wall would be those people who used to serve the emperor. Xinyu's family
0: has lived in Beijing for at least eight generations. His grandfather was an ice merchant, an ancient Beijing trade. They would sell great blocks of ice hewn out of moats and frozen rivers and sell them well into the summer. His parents were teachers, and Xinyu was born in the 1970s. As a child, he lived between two courtyard homes, one shared with his parents and other teachers, and one with his grandmother. But here at the Courtyard Institute, Xinyu teaches adults and children about Chinese culture. And he's showing me how even humbler rooms on this four-sided courtyard
1: follow ancient rules about rank and status. So uh, in Beijing, a hierarchy system is very important. So even in a uh, most macro unit of old Beijing. So in this courtyard, in the past, the elderly of the family will be taking the most important room in this courtyard. The son and daughter will be taking the annex room, and the servant will be taking the back room. The most senior member of the family would only take the east end of the house, because that welcomes the first sun ray from the east, and also when the sun set, also the last one, the sun ray also goes into that house. So Beijing is in the northern edge of the North China plain. So in winter, very strong Siberian wind would come from the north. So almost all the houses in North China plain would be facing south. The main room would be facing south. So that helps the residents get the best use of the sunshine. So that's a very clever design in Mm -hmm. in the ancient times.
0: When you tour old Beijing with an expert like Xin Yu the city starts to feel like a sort of archaeological dig. You can see the layers of history all on top of one another. His hutong has a strange name. Zhonglao hutong means middle old hutong. He reckons it's a contraction of a much older, longer name that's connected to a long-lost temple to the god of horses near this site, and animals from the imperial cavalry might have been brought there when they fell sick. And as he walks me around, he points out clues to this amazing history. Even that southern wall of his courtyard, it's much higher than usual, and it's topped with golden tiles embossed with a dragon. That tells you that this is an imperial city wall, and those tiles are centuries old. I love the colors of old Beijing and it sounds a bit depressing, but gray is such an important color in old Beijing. And so the, the stone of the floor of the courtyard, the bricks that make up the walls of the courtyard buildings, they're all this very distinctive, quite pale Beijing gray. And then the dark red brown paint that is on all of the timbers. This really is the classic kind of Beijing color scheme is...
1: Yeah, I think the colour scheme is also very hierarchy as well. So you will see that yellow glazed tiles only for imperial families and for some temples as well. So for ordinary people's houses, all the tiles are grey. So that's a very strictly obeyed rule. Nobody can really make any exception because of the hierarchy system.
0: There's an air of mystery and secrecy to Hutongs. Old Beijing is a place of blank walls and closed doors. And even when you open a hutong doorway, a so-called spirit wall of grey bricks often lies just behind it. Those are designed to guard residents from evil spirits, but also prying
1: eyes. If you look at the traditional architecture, you can see how this architecture was designed and built for the purpose of protecting people's privacy. For example, when you walk in a hutong. Uh, You look around, you actually don't see high, big, glassy windows in the past. All the windows, if there were any windows, they normally are small and uh, much higher uh, on the wall. So you don't really uh, be able to see your neighbor's life. And uh, all the courtyard gates, they are never designed to face to each other.
0: Like so much else, that ended in 1949 when Chairman Mao came to power. Privacy became suspicious, a mark of bourgeois tendencies. Those families lucky enough to keep their courtyard home often had them divided up with crude partitions and several new families of workers would be moved in and a new era of Hutong life began. That life was one of revolution, the destruction of relics, of factories built in old temples. Life became public and communal, and the Hutongs often became tough places to live. While Xinyu is showing me around his Courtyard Institute, an artist friend of his arrives. This is Wu Pei Xian. He was born in 1942 when Beijing was under Japanese occupation. <laughs> I asked Mr Wu about his earliest memories of living in a hutong as a child, just a few streets east of Forbidden City. You know, very close to Without prompting, he talked about a famous literary neighbour, Lao Shuo, best known for the novel Rickshaw Boy and the play Chaguan, or Tea House. He says that Lao She's daughter was friends with his neighbours and she would come and do her homework in his courtyard. That's a very Beijing reply. And it's not just boasting. Old residents have this mental map of the city built around people as well as places. Like lots of long-time Hutong residents, Mr Wu's early memories are anchored by distinguished neighbors, scientists, doctors, opera singers and journalists who live nearby. He tells me too about the first time he saw a Red Army soldier, as the communists promised Beijingers that the city would be liberated peacefully. Xinyu was born 30 years later than Mr Wu, and he grew up in a very different Beijing. Today, his office at the Institute resembles an old scholar's study, filled with art and books, all guarded by a handsome hutong cat, Ginger. So Xinyu has had to relearn many lost traditions.
1: Honestly, I was very unfamiliar with this Chinese literati life. But after founding the Kotian Institute, I have many friends coming. Many of them are painters, calligraphers, artists. So they each teach me something. So I gradually learn how to get into this kind of spiritual life of the Chinese Asian, literati. I think it's very important for us to understand how our ancestors are killing their own spare times. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: I'll be back in a moment to share more about Beijing's hutongs and how they're in peril. The Hutong life of Hu Xinyu's childhood was another world. It was simpler. It was materially poorer. He remembers a time when he rebelled against the hardships of courtyard life, the chore of hauling around coal briquettes for the family stove, the freezing public loos in winter. But back then, youngsters had a lot of freedom too. Writers and filmmakers have been drawn to describe those simple freedoms. I think my favourite film about Beijing is 陽光燦爛的日子, In the Heat of the Sun by the director Jiang Wen. Beijing,變得这么快. It's a coming-of-age movie about a really dark time, the cultural revolution. But it's seen through the eyes of kids who all live in a big communal courtyard. And because their parents are caught up in the chaos of the Mao years, the kids are left to run wild. In this scene, you hear the hero monkey celebrating because he's just learned that his father's being sent out of Beijing with the army, leaving him alone to hang out with other troublemakers.
1: joined their
0: For today's Beijing children, life is all about preparing for exams. It's extracurricular activities in every playdate organised by parents. But for Xinyu, childhood in the 1970s and 80s had fewer pressures.
1: I think for us, the childhood memory was always very pleasant because back then we didn't have that much homework. So a lot of time to play with your neighbors' children and it's very easy to get to them. That doesn't mean
0: there weren't problems to hutong life. After the revolution, many courtyards were handed to work units and shared between many families. And the privacy that was once so integral to hutong life disappeared.
1: When I was little, we don't have a private bathroom. We have to go to the public toilet, which is about 200 meters away. So you can imagine in winter and night, it's very challenging for a young boy. And also, we don't have a private uh, shower. All
0: this could be very hard on adults. I've spoken to older Beijingers who remember their parents being bullied by neighbors in the Mao years, accused of political crimes, when really the problem was some dispute over a shared kitchen. But children are adaptable. Xinyu remembers when a neighbor with a new appliance was big news.
1: I think... The kind of intimacy with neighbors was very interesting. And uh, we used to tremor just to visit your neighbors just uh, freely as a child. Especially when I grew up, people started to have TV sets, started to have different kind of ice refrigerator, so this kind of stuff. So you are very curious as a child. So you like to visit your neighbor and check out that kind of stuff.
0: When I first saw Hutongs as a backpacker in 1996, the modern world was already closing in on old Beijing. And the truth was, many courtyards had not been looked after properly for a long time, and they were falling apart. The people who lived there didn't always love them, and a question mark hung over their future. The lack of privacy, the leaking roofs, the freezing winters, it all made it hard for a preservationist like Xinyu to convince some residents that their homes were worth saving. It took Xinyu time to realise that the main problem was not the design of hutongs. It was that these courtyards were being used for a communal life that would have shocked their original residents back when these were single-family homes in imperial times.
1: Honestly, before I started doing preservation work, I didn't realise how big a difference between the traditional life and the life I have experienced, how drastic, different they are. And uh, when I grew up, I think there's basically no privacy. <laughs> so you know who is who in each courtyard, each hutong, and uh, you know your neighbor's monthly salary, uh, who gets a raise every month. They, they know all that kind of details. But in the past, in the traditional life, people have all kinds of rules. And this kind of rules and orders was observed quite seriously.
0: And as Beijing modernised, many people living in hutongs were ready to move on. Some were quite willing to take compensation money and move to high-rise apartments on the far edges of the city. In part, local officials just had no budget for historic renovations. They saw these old houses as trouble. Much better to knock them down and sell the land to a developer who would build wide roads and shiny glass towers and make the city modern and gleaming. And to be honest, there was an element of corruption in that story too. I remember writing stories about land sold cheaply to developers that were owned by family members of local officials. And eventually, even Shinu's family sold their courtyard house.
1: We basically sold it to the government because my grandpa passed away uh, too early. So there were old women, so they couldn't repair the old houses. So we sold it to the government.
0: By 1998, when I was back in Beijing for my first posting as a journalist, I would cycle along the hutongs and see the feared character Chai demolish, painted on more and more walls. And it wasn't long before whole neighbourhoods lay in ruins. Amidst all that destruction, people knew that precious heritage was being destroyed. Back in the 90s, I wrote a story about a professor who had the last perfect Ming Dynasty courtyard in Beijing. He tried giving it to the government for free in the end, but it was still torn down to make way for an office-building car park. Campaigners tried talking to Chinese government officials about other world cities that had torn down their historic districts and then regretted it. Back then, Xinyu started to collect oral histories from residents to explain to communities what was being lost.
1: I think starting from 1999, we had about 2,200 hutongs. From 2000 until maybe 2010, I think for about 10 years, we lost about... uh, 700, 800 hutongs. And each hutong was formed by maybe from 50 to 100 quarter houses.
0: And were the locals fighting to protect them, or they were happy to leave if they were given money in a new apartment?
1: When you say locals, you have to define the locals. There are two kinds of locals. One is people who, their family used to live here. But uh, there are also families whose family moved to Beijing in the 1950s, 1970s, or even 2000, But they are happily moving away. Most of them, most of them.
0: So they don't have a long connection. But they don't
1: have an emotional connection. They hate this kind of cold bungalow houses. That is very in- inconvenient for them. Right. They would like to move to high rise.
0: Wu Pei Peixian, the artist in his 80s, whom I met in the courtyard earlier, he remembers a poignant irony from those days of breakneck demolitions. The bulldozers came to his family courtyard in 2001, he recalls. Mm. And as the grey walls of some of his neighbors' homes came down, he saw inside their courtyards for the first time. And only then did everyone realize what was being lost. Mm. Thanks to preservationists like Xinyu, the bulldozers have slowed and most remaining hutongs are being preserved. And so now how many hutongs are left?
1: Uh, We did a survey in 2016. So according to our survey, slightly under 1,000. The government did another round of survey using our data and uh, they supplemented more information. So right now, I think officially, there are about 1,200 hutongs under protection. And are they now safe, do you think? I think they are safe. But that
0: sometimes comes at a cost. Some courtyards are being turned into hipster coffee bars or boutique hotels for tourists, high-priced private clubs, and that tidying up is creating some handsome places. But some of them lack the spirit of old Beijing. Hu Xinyu is devoting his life to teaching Chinese and foreigners, about traditional culture in the hutongs. He hosts talks and concerts for adults, and at weekends and holidays, his courtyard is full of children learning how to cook food on an old iron stove or make paper cuts or stage folk plays. More and more, they tell him this is their first time in a hutong. Revealingly, Xinyu does not live in a hutong himself. For one thing, it's just too expensive to rent or buy a renovated courtyard. He tells me a joke about a Beijinger who sells his courtyard and emigrates to Europe in the 1980s.
1: his house, moved to Europe.
0: Coming home to China decades later, he suddenly realizes that all the money he earned and saved abroad adds up to much less than his hutong home would be worth if he just kept it. <laughs> I mean, these are easily a million dollars now. These are million-dollar homes now, I say to Xinyu, naively. I would add a zero. (laughs) Add another zero, he says. Xinyu's own alleyway has kept its scruffiness. Just outside his lovely courtyard, some of his neighbours have old pushchairs and electric fans piled up on the street. Their grandchildren chase each other around on scooters in the shadow of the Imperial Hill. Jing Shan. That will not last forever. Many locals are retired, maybe living in rooms allocated by a long-gone work unit. It's not for me to tell Beijingers to just put up with picturesque discomfort. Foreign visitors anywhere should avoid sighing over places where they would not choose to live. But Hutongs can be restored, and these are neighbourhoods with centuries behind them. If Beijingers like Xinyu can also keep their spirit alive for future generations, not just China, but the world owes them our thanks. Thank you for listening to Drumtower. And if you've got any memories of Beijing's Hutongs, I'd love to hear them. You can email us at drumeconomist.com. At and there's plenty more coverage on China in The Economist. This week, my Chaguan column is about the death of a Buddhist master with millions of followers and how it's robbed China of an influential friend in Taiwan. You will need to be a subscriber to read it. You can sign up at economist.com slash offer. Alice and I will both be back next week. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell and Barclay Brown produced this episode. Sound design was by Tingley Lim and Nicola Raufast. And Drumtower's music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods